Well, our ministry to young adults here at our church called Devoted, led by Pastor Kevin Wong, are finishing up their weekend retreat at the beach uh, as we speak. So continue to be in prayer for them that all the uh, seeds planted from the teaching would uh, be uh, something that would bring forth fruit in their lives in the days ahead and that their memories of the fellowship they had and and all the wonderful experiences would be something encouraging to them. Pray for them that they'll have safe travel home this afternoon as well. But we're very grateful they had that opportunity. Grateful for our ministry devoted, uh, called Devoted to our single uh, adults. Well, find uh, with me this morning, First Thessalonians chapter 3. We are continuing our look at this third chapter today in verses 6 through 10, 1 Thessalonians 3. One of the ways to summarize each of us is to identify what we get most excited about. I don't know what that is for you individually, but whatever it is that puts us in a good mood, whatever it is that thrills us, whatever it is that brings us great joy, that gives insight then into our priorities, which means that gives insight into who we are. Well, in our passage today, in verses 6 through 10 of 1 Thessalonians 3, we find that about the Apostle Paul. We find what thrilled the Apostle Paul. We find what brought him great joy and confidence. And Paul needed that joy because we saw in our study last time, he had come to be in a state of anxiety, at least in the sense that he was very burdened. He had a troubled heart, we could say, over the potential state of the believers in Thessalonica. Now, let's set the stage for our study today with a short review of last week's study. Paul had been ministering in Thessalonica along with Timothy and Silas, and many had come to Christ. A church was planted, but The apostle was forced out of that city due to persecution. And therefore, he was longing in his heart to get back there to be with them, just to fellowship with them, but to go beyond just fellowship, to see how their faith was holding up, especially in the face of their many afflictions and trials, and as well, how their faith was holding up in the face of Satan's temptations, constantly tempting them to abandon their belief in Christ. Well, after he departed Thessalonica involuntarily, the apostle ended up eventually in the city of Athens, a very pagan city. And while he was in Athens, not only did Silas depart to go minister to some other churches and check on them, but Paul decided, because of his great burden over Thessalonica, he decided to send Timothy from Athens back to Thessalonica to check on those beloved believers there which, of course, left Paul totally alone in Athens, at least for a while. And then, eventually, he moved on to the city of Corinth. However, eventually, Timothy, along with his other partner, Silas, they were able to rejoin Paul in that city of Corinth. And it was the report that Timothy brought to Paul there that then prompted the apostle to write this letter to the Thessalonians. Now, much of 1 Thessalonians focuses on Paul's understanding of what true gospel ministry is, 
Uh, it focuses on his commitment to be faithful in the proclamation of God's word. In fact, the section that we are in, starting at chapter 2, verse 1, all the way through what we're looking at today, is very valuable in helping us understand what a biblical gospel ministry looks like and what characterizes genuine gospel ministers. Well, today we come to, as I said, verses 6 through 10, and it is here that we find Paul mentioning that report from Timothy that Timothy brought back to him. Now, as I noted last time, the whole chapter, verses 1 through 13, can be divided into three sections, and so we looked at section 1 last time. I'll just review that briefly. Section 1, we entitled The Strategic Mission, The Strategic Mission, and we noted two facets of that that mission. We looked, first of all, at the circumstances of the mission, and it's what I've already reviewed with you this morning. The circumstances were everything I just said about Paul's burden, about Paul's concern, and his choice to send Timothy on a mission back to Thessalonica. Then we looked at the other facet of this strategic mission, and that was the objective of the mission. And to best understand the objection, we answered a couple of questions. One question we answered answered was this, what was the essence of the objective? The essence is boiled down to this, Paul wanted to find out the state of their faith, pretty clear. Then we asked this question, what was the reason for the objective? Well, it was because of the dangers that those Thessalonians were facing, the dangers to their faith, the danger of the trials that could throw them off track and make possibly them doubt Uh, Christ, or the temptation that they were facing from Satan, who was always tempting them to abandon their walk with Christ. So that was the objective of the mission, and those were the questions that helped us understand that objective. Well, now we're ready to go then to the second section. Section number one, the strategic mission. Now today, verses 6 through 10, section number two, the encouraging report, the encouraging report. So Timothy finally returned from his Thessalonian mission with a report to the city of Corinth where Paul was, and that report was full of cheerful news. And that news greatly encouraged Paul. Let's study that together. Let's identify, first of all, the content of the report, the content of the report. Well, when Timothy arrived back from Thessalonica and presented that report to Paul, The apostle was in Corinth, and from that city, then he writes what we're reading now in verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you. If you want the narrative of this, the historical narrative, that's in the book of Acts chapter 18. And chapter 18 of Acts verse 5 does tell us this. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, meaning joining Paul in Corinth, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. So evidently, Timothy and Silas returned to Paul at approximately the same time, arriving there in Corinth. In any case, that opening phrase of verse 6, but now, or just now, shows that Timothy's arrival immediately preceded the composition of this letter. In other words, Paul was so excited about the report that he got that he fired off this letter to the Thessalonians to express what was on his heart. And as we see in verse 6, the report was well received. 
It even gave the apostle great pleasure. Verse 6 goes on to say that Timothy has brought us good news of your faith and love. Now, his choice of words there, good news, is interesting. That is the verb that is usually reserved in the New Testament for gospel preaching, the preaching of the good news of the gospel. The gospel is called good news because it tells us something very important. It tells someone how he or she can be forgiven of their sin. It tells someone how they can have eternal life and be rightly related to God. And the person who believes that gospel now has new hope for living. Well, Paul chose that term to emphasize that Timothy's report to him was like hearing gospel good news. It was so good. It was news that thrilled his heart. And there were some aspects to this good news. Here's the first thing. It was news that the Thessalonians had strong faith in the Lord. Tim, Paul wanted to know that, and Timothy brought back a good report. They had strong faith in the Lord. That means that their own trust in God had been sufficient through all the difficulties that they faced. Or to put it differently, they were persevering in sound doctrine even through their trials. Our faith in the Lord depends on understanding the truth that God has revealed about Himself, about us, about the gospel. They had heard all that. They believed it, which means they were not like the person represented in the second soil in that parable of Matthew 13 called the parable of the sower. Well, I mentioned that parable from time to time because that parable is so important to understand. There were these different soils that the sower threw the seed on, and that seed represented the gospel, the good news. It fell on different kinds of soil. There were different kinds of responses. Well, the second soil is mentioned and explained in Matthew 13, verse 21. Listen to what it says. This is about a person who supposedly believed the gospel, but verse 21 says this, He has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And so when affliction or persecution arises, it says immediately he falls away. Matthew 13, verse 21. My point is these Thessalonian believers were not like that. They didn't represent that person who walks away from the faith because of trials and afflictions and difficulties. Instead, the Thessalonians are an example of the fourth soil, the good soil, Matthew 13, verse 23, and the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, that means the heart that's been prepared sovereignly by the Lord to receive the good news, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty some 30. The Thessalonians represented that. They were the good soil. So that parable is confirming that by persevering in faith and bringing forth fruit even in the midst of afflictions, that gives clear evidence of someone being a true believer. And therefore, the Thessalonians were giving clear evidence of being genuine Christians. And that thrilled Paul's heart. That was good news. Second, they were persevering in something else, not only in their faith, 
but in authentic love of other believers. It says that was part of the news. The fact that the news was uplifting was due to this as well, and this as well well was clear evidence of their salvation. They loved one another. That thrilled Paul to hear that. Just remember what Jesus told his disciples on the night before he was crucified in the upper room. After Judas had left that upper room to go betray Jesus, Jesus turned to the remaining 11 disciples and said this in John 13, verses 34 and 35. He says, I give you a new commandment that you love one another. That's agape love. Even as I have agape loved you, that you also love one another. Then he says this in verse 35. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's why it thrilled Paul's heart. They were persevering in their faith. That was part of the report, part of the content. And they were persevering in their love for one another. That was so crucial for Paul to hear. In fact, it's not just Jesus who says that, that love is evidence of true saving faith. There are several verses in the epistle called 1 John that say that. I'll read just a couple. 1 John chapter 2, verse 10, John writes, The one who loves his brother abides in the light. John is one of those disciples who were in the upper room that night and heard what Jesus said about this new commandment, about the world knowing that we're his followers if we love one another. He took that to heart. He learned that lesson. And so he wrote that, the one who loves his brother abides in the light, which means the opposite is true. The one who does not exemplify brotherly love for other believers abides in darkness. 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. Good news to Paul. The Thessalonians were persevering in that love, giving evidence that they were truly saved. But the good news didn't stop there. The content of the report didn't stop there. There's something else. Third, it's in verse 6. They were persevering in support of the missionaries. Now, there were a lot of opposition to Paul and Silas and Timothy, uh, the pagan Gentiles, the religious leaders amongst the Jews. They all began to say uh, things that were not true about Paul, spreading rumors that they were just exploiters, they were charlatans, they didn't really care about the Thessalonians, they were in it for the money and so forth. It was not true. Paul wondered though. He was burdened about that. Were they listening to those reports and starting to doubt the integrity of the apostles? No, they weren't. Look at verse 6. This was part of the content of the report. That you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. And that word longing means an intense feeling. So this was reciprocal here, what was going on. Just like the missionaries longed to return to Thessalonica to have fellowship with those believers, so the Thessalonians were yearning for the same reunion. So just to summarize, Timothy's report assured Paul that they still maintained a warm spot in their, in their hearts for them, and they reciprocated in all their desire to be together again. And most importantly, not only did they have cherished memories of the apostles, they were persevering in their faith and in their love. Well, what was the results of the report? Let's look at that. We've seen the content of the report. Here's the results of the report. The first result is this, 
comforted hearts. Comforted hearts, verse 7. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. So after affectionately addressing them as brothers, you know, brethren, brothers and sisters, Paul confirms that those Thessalonians weren't the only ones going through trials. He was concerned about their faith and their love in the midst of those trials, but they weren't the only ones going through trials. He and the other missionaries, it says here, also faced much distress and affliction. That was specially true in Corinth from where this letter was being written. And the words that are used there refer to some pretty severe troubles. The word distress means a a pressing kind of care that is even choking. And the word affliction refers to trouble that is uh, crushing. So just put those two thoughts together. Trouble, trials that are choking and, and crushing. Together they emphasize that his situation, Paul's situation in Corinth was far from a happy one. It wasn't easy. It was difficult there, full of trials, full of challenges. And yet, even in the midst of those difficult circumstances, the missionaries found comfort. They were comforted in knowing that the Thessalonians were doing well. The Thessalonians were growing in their faith and persevering. The Thessalonians were persevering in their love. The Thessalonians remembered the missionaries fondly. By the way, there is an important lesson, I think, for us to learn here, that loving what God is doing in the lives of other believers will be an encouragement to us as well, even in our own trials and afflictions. In fact, Paul writes this regularly in his letters that he found comfort and encouragement by being around other believers. Here's what he told the Romans. It wasn't just the Thessalonians. Romans 1, verses 11 and 12. For I long to see you, verse 12, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you. He wrote to Philemon. That was a letter to an individual, Philemon. And in verse 7... Of this short letter to Philemon, he says, For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, Philemon. So this is a reminder how important it is to regularly fellowship with other believers and be around other believers. It helps us find comfort in the midst of our own trials. It's certainly true for Paul. That was one of the results of the report, a comforted heart. That leads to the second result, revived souls. Revived souls, not just Paul, but Timothy and Silas as well, but especially Paul. He's doing most of the writing, but he says in verse 8, for now we really live. What's he talking about there? What does he mean, this idea of, of living or really living? I suppose it helps to understand it a little bit if we remember a common expression that people say sometimes. It's a, it's a slang expression It's used when somebody, uh, they're interacting with somebody that they feel like is wasting their time or they're just uh, pursuing something in life that's totally meaningless and so on. The individual may tell that other person, you know, you need to get a life. Get a life. And the point in saying that is that person needs to find something Something meaningful to focus on. They need to find a, a change in their priorities, for example, so that they can say that finally they're really living. I think that's kind of the idea here. Well, think about the opposition that Paul faced in his day from the pagan Gentiles, 
from the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders who opposed him, who were spreading lies about him because they hated Christ and they hated the gospel. Those opposers, Gentiles and Jews alike, might be tempted to say that to Paul. We don't understand any of this that you're focusing on. You need to get a life, Paul. Well, in reality, Paul had come to know what really living was. He had come to know Christ. He had come to know what gives real purpose to life. Well, then what happened? It's just that his burden over the Thessalonians had robbed him of the sense of that purpose, had robbed him of the, of the experience of it, at least for a while. So what he's saying here in this verse is that he got it back. He once again found his confident outlook. It it rejuvenated him to know that his converts were standing fast. It it stimulated him once again. It, It renewed his zeal in the ministry. We could say it revived his soul. And he used a present tense of the verb live here to say this was not just a little passing burst of emotion here on his part. It was something that now he was, he was abiding in. The fullness of the Christian life once again returned to Paul's experience. He experienced revival. And that kind of soul revival can be the experience of any believer who's taking comfort in the right things. From what we're learning here, God's sovereign working in other believers. There's comfort in that. There's a revival to our own souls in that. You know, it's what a church could learn from as well. This is also how a church should define real revival. I mention that because of what I grew up in, the atmosphere I grew up in. I grew up in revivalistic churches, and many of you did as well. So you know what I'm talking about. At least in the experience of the churches I was a part of growing up even as a child and and then as a, even as a teenager and college student, and then a young married life, those early years of our marriage. And Pam grew up in the same thing. It's the idea of a church having, once or twice a year, a week of revival services. What does that mean? Well, a lot of effort would be put into, first of all, finding a dynamic speaker. You've got to have that dynamic speaker come, uh, the kind who can really bring the heat you know, and, and work people up emotionally. And you need to, you need to also invite a, a really good dynamic song leader, someone who could really help with that spiritual pep rally. And the week would be publicized ahead of time. There'd be hopes of drawing bigger crowds perhaps, but the biggest hope was somehow pumping new life into the, to the church. And everyone would get excited at least during that week of revival, so-called revival. Many emotional decisions would be made during the altar calls. But frankly, those weeks had little long-term impact on anybody's lives, little long-term impact on the church. But what is evidence of true revival is the people day by day even during hard times, people of the church persevering in their faith. What is evidence of true revival in a church is the people of the church persevering in their love for one another. We can have that sense of revival anytime. Well, Paul then added this in verse 8. 
if you stand firm in the Lord. He's not casting doubt on it. That's not what the point is there. They were standing firm, and he saw it. Interesting, he didn't use even the the word standing firm. That was the normal word. He used a military term. It's the term that in the military they would use for not retreating, even in the face of enemy attack, holding their ground. So the main point is just being emphasized again that, that Paul, he's saying, if I know that you are continuing to stand firm, and you are, I do know it. And and if I know that you're unmoved by the trials and the temptations and the affliction, I do know it, then I would be revived, and I am. Now I'm really living. Notice what he clarifies, though, here. He makes it clear they were standing firm, but he says, in the Lord. He wanted to make sure to say that. They were standing firm, not due to their own strength. He knew it was the work of God in their hearts. They were standing firm due to his strength. But nevertheless, because of Timothy's report, Paul's heart was comforted. His soul was revived. There are two of the results, a comforted heart, a revived soul. And a third result in his life of the good news was this, joyful prayer. Joyful prayer. Verse 9, for what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? Now, in the translation I just read, the words render and in return are separated. It says, what can we render to God for you in return? In the Greek, they're actually together because they're actually one word, render and return. And it's a word that expresses the idea of paying back something that's due. So what he's saying is, what can we pay back to God for all this good news and what's going on in your life? Well, he puts it in the form of a rhetorical question. For what thanks can we render to God? What can we pay back? The rhetorical question makes it clear that it was impossible to do it. It was impossible to really repay the Lord for the good news that had brought such comfort to their hearts and such revival to their souls. All they could do was simply thank the Lord joyfully in prayer. So they did. He says they rejoiced before the Lord, meaning in prayer. And that's an important thought. It was before the Lord. They were giving their thanks to the Lord. Why was that important? Well, Somebody might have heard that report from Timothy. Somebody might have been listening in. I mean, after he brought the report to Paul in Corinth, I'm sure he then posted it on social media. So then everybody's reading it out there, you know. So people are thinking, oh, that work in Thessalonica is going really well. Paul did a great job there. This was all due to the work Paul had done. So this expression of joy, that's just an expression of Paul's own personal triumph. Paul's feeling proud of his work in that city. Maybe somebody could come to that conclusion. Paul wanted to make sure that everybody knew that was not the case at all. He realized that what had happened in Thessalonica and what was still happening was due to God's work in people's hearts. And therefore, he gave praise to the one who really deserved it. It was before God that he knew he needed to go to express his joy. Listen, we here at Twin City can understand this. This is true for us as well. You know, this church has a long history. Now it's up to probably 67, 68 years perhaps that this church 
has been in this city from the time it was formed in the, in the living room of someone's house. They went through many experiences through all those early years, and the church began to grow. Eventually, they built a worship center here where we are right now, but it's not this one. That one burned down eventually. They had fortunately built this educational building over here, what we call the fireside room, so they had services there while they had to build something here again. What we're sitting in, though it didn't look quite like this, but this was the second one. They went through those kind of difficulties and challenges. There were other challenges along the way. There there was a time in the history of the church where uh, there was some disunity, some severe disunity, and people leaving. That was a hard time to come through. There's been other hard seasons for us to go through, but we can say something here about all that. God has been completely faithful to this church all along the way and still is. We're in agreement with Paul. All thanks for any spiritual progress here at all goes to the Lord. And it's our joy to give it to Him. One more thing that I find interesting here is how Paul, with this rhetorical question, is trying to say he was having difficulty coming up with the right words to say to the Lord about all this this joy. Now, I've been in that place in my prayers before, but for a different reason. I've had trouble expressing to the Lord the burden that was on my heart, the angst that I was going through, or the turmoil, or the perplexity, or the discouragement, or the fear. There's been those times where I didn't know what to say, or I've started the prayer like this, oh God, and it just ended. I didn't know what else to say taking comfort in the Lord, the Holy Spirit, praying for me on my behalf. I get that part of not understanding what to say, but Paul was on the other side of that. He was saying, I was a hard time finding a way to express appreciation and joy. That just confirms the level of joy he had here. It wasn't anything superficial. It was a deep, heartfelt, and sincere joy that he was expressing in prayer to the Lord. And with that joyful expression, he also would make some requests on their behalf. Look at verse 10. In his joyful prayer, this was included. As we night and day keep praying most earnestly. Now that expression, day and night, is not letting us know when Paul had his quiet times. You know, he had a time in the morning, had a time in the evening. Doesn't mean that. This doesn't mean that he prayed 24 hours a day and it's all he did. It's a way of pointing to the frequency of the praying. He did frequently pray. It points to that frequency. And the phrase that he throws in there most earnestly points to something. That points to the intensity of his prayers. So together, they do express how Paul's longings found expression from his heart in regular and heartfelt prayer. And the thrust of the petitions now for the Thessalonians was twofold. First, it says in verse 10 that he asked God to remove any obstacles to the way of Paul returning to the city, a reunion. Verse 10, he prayed that we may see your face. That was the immediate goal, that they would be reunited with them. But second, there was an ultimate goal, that he'd be able to give them some additional instruction He says in verse 10, and that we may complete what is lacking in your faith. Now that 
verb translated may complete, or you may have a translation that says may supply what is lacking in your faith. It is a word that was used for the mending of nets. There'd be a hole in the nets, and they would have to get together and, and fix that and repair that, restore the net. But in the New Testament, it began to be metaphorically used a different way. For example, in Galatians 6.1, it's translated restore. In Galatians 6.1, it says, if anyone's caught in sin, caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, still walking with the Lord, in other words, restore such a one. Mend that person. Same words, the thought of correction. And here in our verse, in 1 Thessalonians, then it's used with this idea of supplying something that's missing. The phrase, what is lacking, points to a deficiency. So it's, it's solving a deficiency. It's, it's shoring up a shortcoming in some way. So on one hand, Paul was enthusiastic for the spiritual achievement of these converts, and yet at the same time, he recognized they could grow more. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 3, he's already commented in a positive way on their, on their, their growing. Chapter 1, verse 3, they're constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfast of hope. And yet, Paul knew they could grow even more and he desired to be a part of that. He desired to help that growth. And so he prayed that the Lord would give him that opportunity again of building them up wherever there was weaknesses, giving them instruction wherever there was some, still some ignorance. It would thrill his heart to have that ministry again. This made me think of something as well. On the practical side, it's why a pastor needs to think long-term when he comes to a church and begin his ministry. He needs to at least be thinking that way. Circumstances can change that, but that's his heart's desire to give his life there long-term because there's so much to teach. But yet I've had a discussion like this before with a pastor or two or three along the way in years past. That after a couple of years of being in a, in a church ministry, they're, they're ready to move on because they don't know what else to do. They've come to the end of all their sermons that they've had prepared, their sugar sticks as we call them, and now they just want to take that bag of sermons and go somewhere else. You know, the Lord's really leading me to this other church now. Do you know the average length of time for a pastor in a church today in our nation is somewhere between 18 and 24 or so months? year and a half to two years. That, that's kind of typical. And for many of them, it's, it's just going from church to church to just preach their hobby horses and the things that they're, they're excited about, and, and then they sort of lose their zeal, and they don't know what to do after a while. And that's hard for me to understand, actually. The reality is all believers always need to grow more. Well, we'll never get there. And one of the reasons is God's Word is so deep. We can never exhaust all its riches. We can never come to a point where it's not helpful to us, even if we're hearing something we've heard before, right? It's still edifying. Well, the point is, Paul was revived in his soul. His heart was comforted. He had joy once again. It was all because of what that news, that good news prompted in his heart. And therefore, he was enabled to go about his ministry now with vitality and enthusiasm and certainty. There's so much more I need to teach. Teach, Lord, give me an opportunity to do that. What a radical change in Paul from what we saw last time. 
There's the content of the report, the results of the report. just want to leave you with some takeaways for us today. I was pondering all this yesterday and today. Just what's something timeless about all this? Here's one. What we find here, what we're reminded of, are the timeless experience of all people. The timeless experience of all people. And I have to say this from time to time, and I do, that this is common. This is the life of a believer, to go through trials. That's the common experience of all people, and it includes Paul. So it kind of encourages me to say, you know, that Paul and I, we're just like this. (laughs) We're just alike in this regard. We both suffer. I mean, he too had times of great burden, just like I do, just like you do. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 4 is one of those little windows into his experience where he lists all these things that he has had to persevere through. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4, verse 8. I'm just going to read the negative side of each one of all he experienced. We're afflicted in every way, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus. Verse 11, we are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. I mean, that's the Apostle Paul. Even being an inspired writer of the Bible, even being an inspired spiritual leader doesn't produce perfection in this life, and it doesn't eliminate trials. So in that, there's a timeless principle here. In that, we are all the same. We're all in that boat together. Here's a second takeaway for us. It's the timeless, number two, the timeless prevention of despair. In that list I just read where he said we're afflicted in every way and perplexed, there was a positive side of each one of those. And one of them he says, but, but not in despair. In other words, we can be discouraged, we can be burdened, we can be anxious. All of that's true. There can come a point where it crosses a line where it's now in immobilizing bondage of despair, the dungeon of despair. Well... Slipping into despair is best prevented by looking outward. Listen, the worst thing we can do is to keep looking inward. I mean, just look again at the passage. Think again of the passage. Notice what cured Paul of his burden and anxiety, what even kept him from going that direction to have a reversal. Notice what caused his comfort and his joy and his revitalization to return. It was looking outward from himself. It was looking at what God was doing in the lives of other believers. It was not looking within himself. It was not trying to get in touch with himself in some way. It was caring more about what is going on in the lives of others than what his own situation was. And I'm just here to tell you that will work for us as well. still works. Now, granted, this approach of being outwardly focused and this approach of prioritizing other people's needs above our own, granted, that approach is not necessarily our default setting. It's not our natural inclination. But there's a couple of bottom line thoughts I'll give you here. Selflessness, which is what I'm discussing, selflessness helps cure anxiety. Selflessness helps with discouragement, depression. 
And in contrast, the other side of that, selfishness or a self-focus feeds those things, makes them worse. Selfishness feeds anxiety, feeds discouragement. My point is we too should be encouraged by the faith of others and what God is doing in their lives, even and especially when we're going through difficult circumstances ourselves. But there's another side to that, isn't there? That's us going through a, a circumstance and looking for some comfort for ourselves. There's another side to it. When we're in that difficult situation, then there's others looking at us. We need to remember that we don't just suffer for ourselves, and we tend to think that way sometimes. We do take comfort in some promises in Scripture that all things are working for good. You know, it doesn't matter what we go through. God is using it for His glory and our good to shape us. But it's very easy to to only think that way, that, yes, I'm going through difficult times, but you know what? God's using it in my life, and that's true. God's shaping me and molding me. We can easily just be thinking about me. I'm just reminding us of the other side. But others are watching. Others are looking for comfort. Others need to see our faithfulness. Because others can be encouraged by our perseverance in these same things, in faith and in love and in our joy. And lastly, I think what we find here is the timeless marks of true believers. So we find the timeless experience of all people. We find the timeless prevention of despair. And we find this, once again, the timeless marks of true believers. In other words, what marks a true believer has never changed. Think back again. What did Paul want to know about those Thessalonians? What did he want a report on? Primarily, their faith and love. Listen, those two words, in a real sense, do summarize so much about what it means to be a true believer. And therefore, how to even recognize another true believer. Faith. I mean, that summarizes so much. It summarizes what it means to know doctrine and to love doctrine that's found in God's Word and and to believe it, to receive it and believe it and to trust that what God says is true and to trust that all that God does is what's right. That's faith. That's the vertical aspect of a true believer's life. And then there's love. That summarizes what it means to love other believers, to love others who are followers of Christ, and what it means to be committed to those other believers. And that even leads us to think about what it means to be committed to the church and the church family. That's the horizontal aspect of a true believer's life. So frankly, a person's profession is suspect. I can at least say that. A person's profession is suspect if they aren't characterized by faith and love, if they're not persevering in faith and love. Even think about what Paul said elsewhere as to what his ministry even was all about. What was he trying to accomplish in places he went? Here's what he told Timothy in 1 Timothy 1 verse 5. The goal of our instruction, the goal of all my preaching, is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Another strong expression of that is in Galatians 5, 6, what he wrote to the churches in the region of Galatia. 
Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. So what means something? But faith working through love. There they are again. And there are other verses. He wrote to the Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 15. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, because of those two things, I don't cease giving thanks for you. Colossians 1, verse 4, wrote to the Colossians. We heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. This is over and over and over in verses, those two. Faith and love, the vertical and the horizontal, summarize the Christian life. And they therefore summarize the goals of our gospel ministry here. When we're discipling new believers and trying to help them grow, grow how? In faith and love. Pretty simple. Not simplistic, but simple. Take it into the home, raising children. What is it we want to see besides their ability to take care of us someday when we're older. I'm going to set that one aside just for a moment. But We want to see their growth in what? Mostly what would thrill our hearts the most, faith in God and love for other believers. That'd be it. This is how we should evaluate our own lives, our own growth. This is where we need to grow individually, continually growing in faith, what it means to trust the Lord to know what He says and to trust Him on it, and to grow in love, what it means to give ourselves to one another in a church family. This is the true measure of a Christian man or woman, his or her faith toward Christ and love toward other believers. And in that love, obviously, we need to prize something here. We need to prize the person who does love other believers in the church family will prize the unity of that church. They will detest the thought of of saying or doing anything that ever might injure the bonds of unity and love. It's so much more important for us to set aside our preferences and debatable opinions and all that kind of stuff for the sake of unity rather than to diminish the joy or to harm the bonds of unity here because it's so important. So what should we do with all this? Let's recommit ourselves then. Let's recommit ourselves to doing just what the Thessalonians were known for, standing firm in faith and in love. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for this reminder today of how important this is and what really forms the very substance of what we say we are, that we're those who have come to faith and we want to grow in that, that we're those who have come to love others who love Christ and we want to grow in that. Lord, we need, need your strength. We confess our, our weakness. We confess our, our selfishness. Thank you that all our sin in Christ is paid for. There's no condemnation. But, Lord, we don't want to live in it. We want to grow. We want to grow in faith and love. And we commit ourselves, recommit ourselves toward that end. Help us with that, Lord, even this week. Strengthen us to remember these things. Help us to stand firm on what pleases God you. In Christ's name, amen.